In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you want insight on how to make love last, you might ask friends, family, a therapist, or a pastor for advice. You probably wouldn't think to turn to a divorce lawyer, but my guest, James Sexton, who does that very job in New York City, says there may be few people who have a better perspective on how to hold a marriage together than the guy who's got a front row seat to how they fall apart. James is the author of If You're In My Office, It's Already Too Late, A Divorce Lawyer's Guide to Staying Together. Today on the show, he shares what he's learned from overseeing over a thousand divorces that you can use to reverse engineer a relationship that lasts. We discuss the five types of infidelity James sees in his practice and the approach to marriage that will prevent affairs. We then get into common sources of conflict in the marriage, including sex, finances, and kids, and how to address these issues so you never end up in James's or any other divorce lawyer's office. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash stay together. All right, James Sexton, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brad. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me. So you are a divorce attorney and you have overseen over a thousand divorces in your career. That's a lot. And I thought it was interesting in your in your book, you talked about how you wanted to be a, a divorce attorney, even when you were in law school. Yeah. Um, you talk about like, yeah, most people, I went to law school and uh, most people don't go to law school wanting to be family law or divorce attorneys. Something you just kind of end up doing because something else didn't shake out. Why did you want to be a divorce attorney? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. When I went to college, I wanted to be a therapist. I was very interested in being a therapist, and I thought that would be my calling. I wanted to help people. I wanted to, you know, I was very interested. I was a psychology major and an undergraduate, uh, a minor of substance abuse counseling and uh, East Asian studies is what it was called at the time. But I was focusing on like Buddhism and Japan. And I was always very interested in that from my background in the martial arts. So I really had no aspiration to becoming a lawyer. When I was a kid, I wanted to become a lawyer. I remember I watched LA Law. It was like one of the few adult shows my parents would let me watch. And I, I really wanted to be Victor Sefuentes. That was Jimmy Smith's character. Because he was like right. the cool lawyer who had an earring and a ponytail. Um, which is kind of funny because I ended up more like, like Arnie Becker, who was kind of the heel, you know, and in, in, in the divorce lawyer. Um, but I, I, I had a, when I was a little kid, being a lawyer sounded exciting to me. Then I wanted to be a therapist. And then when I got through undergraduate and went to graduate school, I studied sociology, um, uh, communication and persuasion specifically. Um, and as I was doing my doctoral work, before I, I when I'd finished my master's working my PhD, I um, I decided to take the LSAT. Um, it was largely because I was teaching test prep for a company, and I was teaching SAT test prep, and I could make more money if I was teaching uh, law school admission test LSAT prep. And so I ended up taking the LSAT so I could 
get a high enough score to be able to teach test prep for the LSAT. I, I did so well that I ended up getting offered scholarships to law school, and then I ended up going to Fordham Law School. And yeah, the only law that interested me really was divorce law, because it was the only one that really felt like it was as human as I, I wanted my career path to be, you know, and, and there was something um, that to me felt like it was the skills of persuasion and all of the things that I liked about the idea of being a therapist, but at a time in someone's life where they're just incredibly open to change because either they are creating change by deciding to get divorced or they're having change thrust upon them by their spouse saying, okay, our marriage is ending. But it's a time of just massive change and reorganization of a person's life. And that struck me as um, a really, really amazing opportunity to be part of people's reimagining of themselves. So it, it hit all the boxes that I liked about being a therapist, but with the ability to use my powers of persuasion and speech and my sort of chess player mentality and bring that to the benefit of my clients. So yeah, it's very rare in law school. I was the only person I've met in law school who wanted to be a divorce lawyer. And I say in my book, as you note, that people tend to, when you talk to divorce lawyers, they say, well, I ended up in divorce law because of this, or oh, I ended up doing, and end up is the term you use all the time. And I think that's very funny because you very rarely use that term for something you meant to do. You know, like you don't say, well, I ended up in Milwaukee. You know, it's like, oh yeah, I was trying to get to this place and I ended up there. It's always that you you landed someplace you didn't mean to be. And um, I, I was very deliberately a matrimonial lawyer. So what's the state of divorce in America today? Like what's the divorce rate? Divorce rate changes every year, but the latest statistics put it somewhere in the area of 56%. That's up a little bit from the year prior. But the question, of course, is what was the impact of COVID and the, the slowdown and shutdown of the court system in varying degrees across the United States? You know, the statistics for first marriages is what we're really interested in because second marriages are have a higher divorce rate than first marriages, but third marriages and beyond have abysmally high divorce rates. Like you're in the 76% when you get to like a third marriage. But yeah, I mean, the, the state of divorce is that it continues to be above 50%. It is still more likely than not that you will get divorced when you get married, which, you know, arguably if we're using legal standards, and, and I know you have a legal education, so you understand the concept of negligence or recklessness, you know, it, it, one could pretty saliently argue that getting married is a reckless activity or at a minimum, a negligent activity, because the probability of harm is quite high if you get married, the likelihood of harm is quite high, and the severity of the harm is quite high. So what we used to call the BPL analysis, you know, the, the what is negligence per se, Theoretically, you know, marriage is still an inherently negligent activity, similar to owning a lion as a pet or having a trampoline next to a, you know, uh, radioactive waste uh, pile. So yeah, that divorce rate, it's, you got to break it down some. So you mentioned if you're on your second or third marriage, the rate goes up. What's the rate look like for first time marriages? First marriages is somewhere over 46% as of 2022. That's the 2022 statistics. Okay. And yeah, so it's it's still quite high. The reason why it, it when you when you say it's, you know, 56% is the divorce rate, you're talking about, you know, everything. Everybody. Sort of all, right. all in. Um, but basically the stats, which are, you know, pretty publicly available, um, I know Forbes puts them out every year, um, but they're always compiled by the Bureau of Vital Statistics. It, you know, what's interesting to me about that is those are the people 
that file for and ultimately receive a judgment of divorce. But that does not include people who are unhappily married, right? Who stay married but aren't enjoying the marriage. They stay together for the kids or for religious reasons or because they don't want to deal with the financial repercussions of divorce. It also doesn't calculate in people who just, you know, are not together anymore, but don't file for divorce. I mean, we used to call that jokingly the Irish divorce. You go out for milk and never come back. But that percentage, that already quite high percentage, doesn't include people who just physically separated from each other and act as if they were divorced, even though they didn't legally divorce. Those are just people who legally went through the paperwork of getting divorced. Are there any demos of people more likely to divorce? Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount of statistics out there about, you know, what leads to it. And again, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of statistics because I think that correlation and causation sometimes get mixed up. But yeah, I mean, you know, the couples who live together before marriage are more likely to divorce. So they have a higher divorce rate if they live together. Having friends who are divorced increases your risk of divorce. You know, 60% of divorced couples cite infidelity as the reason for their divorce. 58% of couples report that arguing was present. 45% indicate they married too young. 38% say that financial problems were a root cause. Yeah, another statistics I've seen, uh, if you're not college educated, more likely to divorce. That's another one I've seen. Yeah, and then the outcomes also, which is people who are divorced die more prematurely than people who are married. Yeah, it's bad for men. Men really get in a yeah. funk when they yeah. get divorced. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's an interesting misconception that like men fare better after a divorce, you know, because of the old sense that, you know, men age like wine and women age like avocados. This idea that a man who divorces in his 40s and his 50s, that he still has the ability to have, you know, 20 and 30 year old uh, romantic partners. But the statistics really actually bear out that men fare a lot worse after a divorce in terms of their emotional outcomes. You know, a person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think there is a lot of misandry out there now. And there's obviously a lot of um, people that are looking to They've decided that men have it better and then they want to find statistics to back that up. But I I don't find that to be the case in my own professional practice of representing men and women. I I think that men do have a, a very hard time with divorce. And again, some of that may be a function of men having less of an emotional vocabulary or being encouraged to have less of a more emotional vocabulary from a younger age. You know, I I think divorce is by all accounts a failure. I don't think anybody ever means to get divorced or when they get married, they certainly didn't mean to get divorced. So, you know, men don't generally as a, at the risk of oversimplification, I mean, we have challenges with failure. You know, it's, it's hard to admit that you failed. It's hard to lose. And divorce is a loss. Even if you quote unquote win in the divorce, if you have a better outcome financially, or you do well in terms of the obligations you have or the amount of time you get spent with your children, um, it's still a loss. It, you know, it's still uh, a tremendous loss. You can have the friendliest divorce in the world and you're still losing effectively half the time you had with your children. So that that's a big hit for people. Who's more likely to initiate divorce in your experience, men or women, or is it about the same? Statistically, women are more likely to initiate divorce than men. But in my experience, it's roughly the same. It's also a question of like, you know, who initiates the divorce, meaning who files a divorce action. That's not usually the person necessarily. It doesn't automatically mean that's the person who took the steps to say, okay, this is over. Divorce is really the process of burying what's dead. But who killed it? And who's the first 
person to acknowledge that it's dead, you know, that's a very individual thing. And I, I don't really think there's a clear gender line on that. But filing wise, more women are likely to file for divorce than men. But it begs the question, is that because women have come to the conclusion the marriage is over before men did? Or is it that women are more more inclined to want to protect their rights or understand their obligations um, when they're in a situation where their marriage is ending? Yeah, this is completely anecdotal, but like my social circle of couples I know that got divorced, I would say like half of them, the man initiated the divorce, but it was because he found out that his wife was cheating, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Because like, we'll talk about this later on, like what causes divorce, because we typically think of you know the philandering husband as a stereotype, but well, cause that's a really popular stereotype. I mean, it makes for great stories, right? I, I think that sort of the zeitgeist is masculinity and misandry and all of that is, is really, um, you know, if a man cheats, he's a scumbag, you know, he's, he's a scumbag. He's a bad guy. He's a philanderer. He's low morals. He doesn't care about his family. He doesn't care about his wife. If a man cheats, you know, he is the bad guy, right? If his wife cheats, he is still the bad guy. He wasn't taking care of her. He was neglecting her needs. She was driven into the arms of another person. You know, it, it, it really is a situation where, you know, if, if a woman um, is cheated on, she's the victim. You know, this poor woman, here she is, and, and her husband's running around on her. And if a woman cheats, it's like, oh my gosh, you poor thing. How, how could you have been forced into that situation? Your needs weren't being met. It's a voyage of self-discovery, or you needed to explore who you really are, and your husband wasn't meeting your needs. So I do think culturally, and, and right now, we've created an environment where, yeah, the men are generally easier to paint as the villains. I I kind of wish life was that simple. You know, it's like Solzhenitsyn said, I I wish there were just good and bad people and they were just running around doing bad things or good things. But the truth is, is the the line of good and evil runs through the human heart. I've I've had female clients that just, you know, pursued relationships because they felt like it. And I've had people whose needs were being terribly not met and they moved on and found someone else that reminded them of the fact that, they could feel love and romance and excitement, and that was the thing that pushed them over the precipice. I've had men who had that exact same experience. You know, I, I, I talk a lot about infidelity in my book because there's just a tremendous amount of infidelity in divorce work. You talk to the cheater, you talk to the cheated on, and you start to figure out that it's just not as simple as people would love it to be, where it's, you know, one good guy or good girl and one bad guy or one bad girl. And it's just, you know, or a femme fatale who, you know, sweeps the other person away. It's, it's just that's such an oversimplification it makes for great movies, but it's just not, you know, it's not real. Right. Men and women, they can both be awful because we're both human beings. Well, they can both be vulnerable. They both are susceptible to the same temptation as anything, you know? I mean, we all, we all are susceptible to temptation. You know, I, I'm not a religious person, but I, I tend to think it's humorous that, you know, if, if you believe in any of the Abrahamic religions and you believe that God gave us 10 rules, you know, whether he spoke to Moses through a burning bush or on a mountain, you know, but I think we'd all agree that, that the 10 commandments themselves have some validity, right? Whether they were divinely inspired or whether they're just an invention of the authors, I, I don't know, but, but, you know, there are 10 rules that have been handed down thousands of years ago. And, don't have sex with someone who you're not married to is two of the 10. It's the only one that gets repeated. Like thou shall not kill is one time. Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not steal. That's one time. But thou shall not covet thy neighbor's wife 
and thou shalt not commit adultery. Those are two commandments. You only get to make 10 rules, and two of them, God, theoretically, as the author, is saying, hey, uh, seriously, like, don't sleep with people other than your spouse. No, no, but like, for real, don't sleep with people other than your spouse. If that doesn't give you some indication, this problem has been around for a while and has been something humans are dealing with for a real long time. I, I don't think there's a better example or proof of that than the fact that two of the Ten Commandments are addressing this specific issue. Okay, so despite the fact that you're a divorce attorney, that's how you make your living, helping people in their marriages. And despite the fact that you said that if you look at the statistics, marriage looks like a big giant risk. Um, it'd be negligent uh, to get married. You're a romantic and you actually, you've written a book um, it's a marriage advice book. Yeah. And you talk about how what people can do to strengthen their marriage and hopefully create a marriage where they don't have to end up seeing you. I'm curious, what insights does a, a divorce attorney have about creating a marriage that lasts that, you know, why would you think you need to write a marriage advice book? Yeah, well, first of all, I, I, I do think I am a romantic at heart in terms of my temperament, but I also see the value in marriage. I mean, I look, we, we talked about the statistics of divorce and how frequent it is, but here's a statistic that a lot of people don't talk about. 86% of people who get divorced are remarried within five years of their divorce. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that there is some need for this particular form of pair bonding. You know, that there is something here that even when it's failed, even when you've been through the trauma and difficulty of a divorce, 86% of people go at it again. They go, let's try it. Why? If it didn't have value to us. You know, I don't believe I can learn everything about myself from myself. I think I need other people to help me find my blind spots. And intimacy, if you look up the word intimacy, it doesn't have anything to do with sex. Intimacy is the ability to be completely yourself with another person. And in its best form, that's what marriage is, is the ability to be yourself with another person who loves you, who's cheering for you, who sees your blind spots that you can't see and you see theirs and you love them anyway and try to help them grow and develop into the fullness of who they are. And, and look, to me, just because something is unlikely to be successful doesn't mean it's not worth trying. You know, I, I tell people jokingly that marriage is like the lottery. You are probably not going to win. But if you win, what you win is so good and so valuable that I, I, I think it's worth it to buy a ticket. I think it's worth it to try to be married. And, and so the, the second question you asked, which is what is a divorce lawyer, a divorced divorce lawyer of all people, going to be able to tell you about how to keep your marriage strong and vibrant? And I actually think I have a very unique perspective, uh, not only lived experience, but that could be very, you know, very uniquely mine and therefore not applicable to many people. But as a divorce lawyer, I have had a ringside seat to men, women, every permutation, older, younger, different religions, lived together, didn't live together, long-term marriages, short-term marriages, marriages with the kids, without, high net worth, lower net worth. I've seen every permutation of how love falls apart. Well, who's going to tell you how to keep your car together better than a mechanic who all they do is watch how cars break down and watch what parts of the car are the first to break down and look at, hey, you know, if you'd come in, my, my sister, for example, my sister's a dentist and she, she, often will say to me that if you have a toothache, it's too late. 
Like there, there's a very limited set of things she can do for you if you have a toothache. By the time your tooth hurts, there's too much going on now to fix it. But if, if you'd seen her before you had a toothache, there's a whole bunch of things she could do to prevent you from ever having a toothache and to prevent you from ever being in that situation. So I really looked at it as my job puts me in this very unique role where people are very candidly with attorney-client privilege telling me the honest truth about their marriage, their finances, their parenting, their relationship with their spouse. And they have no reason to lie to me because they're protected by attorney-client privilege. And, And your doctor and your lawyer are the only two people you should never lie to because our only job is to protect you. And you know, I get to watch how all these couples fall apart. And I started to see patterns of how people got into my office, you know, and and that's how the title of the book, if you're in my office, it's already too late, that it really was about how, what got these people here? Because I genuinely believe, you know, Tom Wolfe in The Bonfire of the Vanities, um, one of the characters is talking about uh, his financial woes and the character says to him, how did you go bankrupt? And he says, I, I, the same way everybody does very slowly. And then all at once. And I think that's what happens with marriages is they fall apart very slowly and then all at once. And so I wanted to write a book about what is the very slowly, what we fall in love super fast. You know, we, we just feel this spark, this connection, this passion, but we fall out of love more slowly And I wanted to think about and talk about how could we keep those little connections so we never have those big marriage killers like infidelity or other major things come into play. Well, let's talk about what causes divorce. And I think the the big one we've we've been talking about is infidelity. And you talk about there are five types of infidelity that you've seen. What are those five types of infidelity? I think we all like to think our our lives are so unique, but uh, I mean, having now... You know, I'm the guy who has to read the text messages between the the mistress and the guy or the, you know, the paramour and the woman. And so I, I got a real ringside seat. And again, I represent the cheater and the cheated on. So I, I, I don't have a, a dog in the fight. But yeah, I think I, I tried to break it down into five types. And, and they're very general, of course. But the first one is what I call the freshly discovered soulmate, which is, you know, where you just decide I've met this person and they are my soulmate. They're just, they're just, you know, you're you're raptured by this person. And I, I think we're particularly susceptible to this right now because the concept of a soulmate has just been jammed down our throats culturally. Even though I think it's a terribly toxic way, because really, what does it mean? Like uh, your soulmate is your perfect friend, perfect romantic partner, perfect sexual partner, perfect roommate, perfect co-parent, perfect travel companion like what are the odds of one person being all of those things that's crazy like that's just a ridiculous list of demands for a person and the truth is like you don't need to have all of those with your spouse like you and your spouse don't have to like exactly the same music exactly the same food you don't have to there are certain things you want you know like if you're a slob and your spouse is a neat freak that's an incompatibility but you don't have to be perfect like perfect is the enemy of good, you know, perfect is the enemy of, and comparison is the thief of joy. But we live in a society now where we're looking at this curated greatest hits from everyone on social media while we're living our gag reel. And we're looking at our marriage and comparing it 
to the uh, performative status of people's marriages, who, by the way, are doing, you know, hashtag best husband ever, hashtag blessed, while they were just in my office doing a consult. So they're not being honest. I mean, I, I crack up when I look at the social media of people who I represent, because a month before they came in and filed for divorce, they're posting about how wonderful their life is and all their pictures of how great everything is and their vacation and how wonderful it is. And it, they're full of it. But people are comparing themselves. So it's just like face filters. You're comparing yourself to something that's not real. So soulmates, you know, the discovered soulmate is what I call the first type of infidelity, which is you find someone who you've decided, this is my person. I made a horrible mistake being with this other person. And, and by the way, it rarely plays out that way. There's a joke in my line of work that a man who leaves his wife for his mistress um, just creates a job opening. And I think the statistics to some degree bear that out. The second type of infidelity, I, I call it the wake-up call. And the wake-up call for many people, I think, is it's really like the nail in the coffin. They've been unhappy. They didn't realize how unhappy they were. And when they meet this new person or they reconnect with a person who they used to be with and they feel that spark of connection and passion, it shows them how far they are from their spouse. And this happens a lot with women. I find a lot of women uh, who've engaged in infidelity, it, it's sort of the soft place to land. It, it, it's the thing that made them go, yeah, I didn't realize how bad it was. And I think this is something we can all relate to in the sense that, you know, until you get over being sick, you don't realize how sick you were. You know, you go like, oh man, I was really sick. Like, I don't know if you're like tired and cranky and then you go to sleep when you wake up from that nap, you go like, oh my God, I was so tired. I didn't realize how tired I was, you know? And so I think it's a matter of sometimes people don't see. And so I call it the wake up call. Um, the third kind is to me, you know, very tragic. And that is what I call the big mistake, um, which is, I do think sometimes people just, people are just stupid. They just have an impulse control issue and they're drunk or they have an opportunity and they give into, you know, an impulse, a sexual impulse, and they make a mistake, you know, and, and look, I'm not suggesting, like, oops, you just made a mistake, no big deal. I understand it's a big deal. But look, we all do things that we know are bad for us, that weren't a good thing for us, that don't align with our morals or our goals. You know, discipline is, as Jocko Willenick says, trading what you want now for what you want most. And I think the reality is, is we all know, hey, I'm, I'm trying to honor my diet and my body and be really healthy. But then someone walks by with cupcakes and you're like, oh, come on, I'm just going to have one. And then you have one. And now you're like, oh, I just blew the diet. I can't believe it. Look, I, I think that people make mistakes sometimes. And I've had people who come in and they go, look, I don't, I, I love my spouse. I screwed up. I love my spouse. And thankfully, a lot of those people work through the infidelity. They work through that situation. It's very, very sad when someone, as a result of just a mistake, you know, a, a poor impulse control, an urge that they followed through on that they shouldn't have and they know they shouldn't have and they regret terribly, when that leads to a divorce, that's a very tragic thing. It's the least often that I see in my office. Usually people come in with the freshly discovered soulmate and they come in and say, oh, I've met someone and I love them and this is the person for me. The fourth kind I, I, I call the push out of the closet. And that's a unique set of circumstances, but I'm seeing it less often these days, thankfully. Early in my career, you know, in the last 10, 20 years, there've been major strides in LGBTQ plus, you know, legal rights and obligations when it comes to marriage. And so um, there was certainly a time where I think the level of homophobia and heteronormativity in our culture was such that, you know, there were a lot of closeted gay men, closeted lesbian women who 
were kind of living double lives and then they would have, you know, same sex affairs. And if they get caught, you know, that's sort of the push out of the closet. Um, and I had, you know, in my career, a number of people who just got caught with a same sex partner. They had been living their lives purportedly as heterosexuals. Meanwhile, they were secretly, you know, having either uh, same sex attraction or they were, in fact, having same-sex relationships. So that's a very common form of infidelity. That's the fourth kind. And the last kind is, is what I call the revenge, which is simple to understand, which is your partner cheated, so now you're going to cheat. You're going to teach them. You're going to teach them a lesson. Oh, yeah, it's okay for you to sleep with your secretary, and I'm going to go sleep with my personal trainer. And that's, you know, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. I don't think anybody feels any better at the conclusion of that, but it's a real, real common thing to do. Uh, so you said the most common one is the the soulmate thing. I mean, the most common one ends up in my office. Yeah. You okay. Know, I, again, I have a unique perspective. I'm a divorce lawyer, so sure. I'm sure if you asked Esther Perel, who I've been on some panels with and who works with couples who are navigating their way through infidelity and trying to stay married, she would probably have a different experience of it than me. Well, let's talk about that wake up call one because that seems like something you can. There's things you can do in your marriage to prevent that from happening, right? Hundred percent. And it's typically not like a big thing that happens that causes you to go, well, you know, this relationship's over and I might as well go find someone else. Like what are the little things that lead up to someone, man or woman, cheating on their spouse because they found that the relationship they have right now isn't meeting some need? Yeah, I I think, you know, the unfortunate answer is it's a lot of very small things. I mean, and anyone who's married knows this. Like if you're sitting around having breakfast with your spouse, and you're having a discussion about the best way to cook bacon. And 10 minutes later, it's like, you know, I never liked your mother, you know, and it's like, what, wait, how did we get here? Like what, what happened? Like this was a discussion about the best route to take, to get to the mall on whether the freeway or the back roads. And suddenly it's that you never listen to me and you don't care about my opinion and you never liked my sister. Like what, what is this stuff you're carrying around? So I, I generally think that, disconnection is the answer like that that's what happens people slowly disconnect in these little tiny ways so what what i encourage people to do is to just vigilantly maintain connection you know we should always be working on our marriage we should always be trying to look at it with new eyes we should always be as jimmy iovine said uh he was one of the most successful marriages in in hollywood and in the recording industry as he he said i'm always trying to close my wife he said, I'm always trying to like act like I'm trying to impress her and woo her. And what's amazing in my experience as a heterosexual man is, is how unbelievably easy that can be if you make a concerted effort at it. You know, the, the test I tell most of my male friends is, is leave a note. I just, I, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. If you don't believe me, if you don't believe anything that I say, that's okay. People are entitled to their opinions and my beliefs don't require that you believe them. But if you want to try something, just leave your wife a note every morning for a couple of weeks. Just leave her a note, just a little, hey babe, you know, just thanks for last night on the couch watching TV. It was so nice. Like the smell of you is just makes me so happy. I fell asleep with it on me. Or, you know, uh, you look so pretty when I woke up this morning. You know, I'm so glad to have such a wonderful woman in my life. Love you. And that takes you 30 seconds. And I'm telling you, that little tiny investment of time and effort will pay dividends like you wouldn't believe. I mean, there are these small things. And when you get to have the view that I have where people are talking to me about these painful ends to their relationship, I talk about in, in, in the book, uh, one of the chapters I talk about, 
uh, a young woman who was divorcing who had two children and I we'd been a lot of miles and I said to her you know was there a moment where you knew that your marriage was over and she told me what I was very heartfelt to me and very powerful to me which is she said that there was a granola that she liked to eat that she used to put in her yogurt and uh, her husband used to always notice when she was running low on it and he would always get a new bag of it for her. I guess it was like only sold at a particular health food store or something. And, and she's like, I never told him that that meant so much to me, but it was just such a sweet thing that like, he would just notice that I was running out of my granola. He didn't eat it, but it was like, he would notice I was running out of my granola and there'd just be this new bag. And he didn't come to me and say like, Oh, look, I got your granola for you. You know, he didn't want credit for it. It's just something he did. It was this small gesture that I'm paying attention that I see this detail and that I love you and I want to just extend this, this kindness, this courtesy to you. And she said, oh, one day she ran out of granola and she thought, oh, well, maybe he's busy and he didn't notice or whatever. So she left the empty bag in there. And after like a week or two, he still hadn't replaced it. And she thought, oh, okay, this is over. And she said it, it, it became apparent in the weeks that followed that like this distance was coming between the two of them. And I thought to myself, like, what if that is it? Like, if it's just granola, like it's just these little tiny gestures of, oh, they use this milk. So let me put it on the table or, oh, they don't like the sound of the garbage disposal. It's, it's, it jars them when it's loud. So I go, hey, babe, I'm going to turn on the garbage disposal real quick. Don't be afraid when I turn it on. Like this small considerations, right? They, like, you know them about your wife. I don't, you know, your wife knows them about you. I don't like and those to me, those intimacies, those little things, the things you love, the things you're afraid of, the things that get on your nerves, your partner theoretically has the ringside seat to those and they can leverage them in the most beautiful ways. I see it when they weaponize them. So by the time you get to my office, you go, okay, I'm angry at this person and here's where their soft spots are. So here's where we can stab them. But I really think that if you can identify those things while you're happily married, you can use them without a massive amount of effort, just small little efforts to just build this abundance of happiness and goodwill between the two of you or maintain it. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. 
All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Okay. So maintain connection. And I, I mean, I think it's about continuing to do the kind of little niceties, you know, the polite stuff, the sharing of gratitude, the affectionate stuff that you did when you were first together and not letting that stuff drop off. And you also talk about how important open communication is in keeping the connection. I have a chapter called Hit Send Now, where I talk about just regularly checking in with your partner. I suggest it 
be done by email because there's something about writing that I think helps you organize your thoughts. And also it's non-confrontational. Like if you try to talk to someone verbally, you're sort of saying, okay, we're going to talk about this right now. Here we go. And then it brings out something defensive in people. Whereas when you read something, you sometimes have time to reflect on it and think about it before you formulate your response. But like I've had couples who contacted me after they read the book and said, yeah, we, we do a walk and talk now once a week. And we just walk around, we just talk about what did you do well this week in the marriage and what did, what could we work on, you know, and um, just maintaining that level of vigilance. I'm sure if you thought about your marriage and yourself as a husband, you could tell me something you did this week that you're proud of for your wife or in your relation to your wife. And you could probably find something that you're not proud of, you know, that you could have done better. And, and by the way, I, as painful and hard as it is to do, I bet you could point out something your wife did for you this week that made you feel loved by or close to her, and maybe something that she said or did that made you feel less loved and less close to her, or an opportunity that she missed that she could have done, right? And why not say it? Like, why not say it? Like, what wouldn't she want to hear that? Like, wouldn't your wife want to hear, like, man, when you said that last night, that was so nice. Like, it just made me feel so loved when you said that. Or, you know, when you, when I told you about what happened at work and you said, oh, I disagree with this or that, like, man, I just felt so, like, kind of criticized. And I, I felt like you kind of didn't meet me where I needed you. Like, and again, not saying it from a place of, so you suck and I'm leaving. You're saying it from a place of, I know you have such power over me. You have such a ability to make me happy. Like we, we've got a culture that just encourages us to just criticize our spouse. And at best it's constructive criticism, but constructive criticism is still criticism, right? And no one likes to be constructively criticized either. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to steer your partner into directions that, that will make them happy and you happy, but doing it in a way that makes them feel loved, supported. You know, one of the things we love about our partners is that they're cheering for us. There's 7.3 billion people in the world and you picked your wife, like 7.3 billion people. And you said, you're the one, you're the one I want to take this ride with. I want to have kids with, I want to, I want to solve problems with, I want to get old with, I, this is, you're the person that's huge. It's a huge, huge task that you've given that person. And why wouldn't you communicate really actively? Like it, people are always asking me, you know, what is the thing that we can do to stay together? And it's kind of like saying to me, like, what is intelligence? I, I don't know what intelligence is, but I can spot stupid a mile away, you know? So I don't know what makes marriages work, but I think what makes marriages work is just doing the opposite of the thing that makes them fall apart. So what makes them fall apart is when you stop caring about what's going on in your spouse's mind and in their heart, when you stop trying to let them know how much you love them, when you stop feeling loved by them and seen by them and appreciated and valued by them. So anything we can do to lean into that, that's valuable as far as I'm concerned. All right. So that can prevent the wake up of infidelity because if you're paying attention to the small things, someone's not going to go to someone else to get those things. Yeah, because I think a lot of times, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about this. I think sometimes, a lot of people, times people think infidelity is just about sex. And it can be for some people. That could be a thing. But oftentimes it's just about, you know, my wife or my husband, they just stopped caring about me. And I found someone who gave me that attention that I had when we were, when I was first dating my, my wife or my husband. Of course. And, and but by the way, sex isn't just about sex. 
Sex isn't just about sex. Sex is friction, sure. Sex is a biological act. Sex is a drive and an impulse. But sex is also about feeling handsome or beautiful, feeling desirable and desired, you know, feeling physically capable. And you know, I mean, it, like, sex is loaded with all kinds of things. So pay attention to the small things to maintain that connection. Absolutely. Um, but let's just talk about sex. Uh, sex is one of the reasons people get married. And I'd like to think it's one of the only reasons people get, I mean, otherwise it's a roommate. Right. Because I have to tell you, if, if sex is no longer part of your marriage, I'm not quite sure why you're married. I mean, look, if both of you were just, okay, yeah, cool. Sex isn't part of it anymore, but then you're just roommates or you're two people running a daycare facility together. You know, sex is the thing that, that makes you a couple. It's the thing that makes you a romantic coupling is, is that sexual connection. So why would you want to give that up if you don't have to? Why would you want to compromise on that if you don't have to? Especially if you knew that it ultimately became something that was a huge marriage killer when people's needs were not being met. When you talk to someone whose needs are being met in their relationship, particularly their sexual needs, if they're being very well met, that person is usually going to have a very high level of satisfaction. Um, but it can be a source of marital conflict. Um, what Tremendous. are the biggest issues you've seen in couples uh, that are divorcing when it comes to sex? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's different for men and women. I know it's not popular to gender things, but I feel that one of the things I like about your podcast is, is I can speak in the terms of the masculine and the feminine, and I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I really do believe, and of course, nothing's true for everyone, but I genuinely believe that a lot of men complain about the frequency of sex, that they're not having as much sex as they'd like. And a lot of women complain about the uh, lack of love and intimacy and connection that leaves them feeling less interested in having a desirable sexual connection to their partner. So what do you do if there is a mismatch in your sexual relationship? Like maybe it's over the frequency of sex, but it could be over something like, you know, the husband likes one thing or you know, wants to experiment with something, but the wife doesn't, or vice versa. And maybe you try to have a conversation about it, but there's still a mismatch. Is it just a matter of figuring out a compromise? Yeah, I mean, there's a chapter in my book called Go Without or Go Elsewhere. And I think you have to decide for yourself which of those two you're going to do. I think if, if you've communicated your need to your partner and it's an important thing to you, then you either are going to have to go without or go elsewhere. And the question you have to ask that only you can answer is which of those two are you comfortable with? I mean, look, I the example I give in the book is feet. I'm not into feet. I don't understand the sexual appeal of feet, but there's a lot of people into feet, and it's like a thing, you know. And I've done a lot of divorces where I've had to read people's emails about feet with the people they were cheating with. It's like a whole vocabulary for it. Just, if you ever go down that rabbit hole online, it's really quite a lot. And I'm not king shaming anybody. Listen, there's so many varieties of the human sexual experience. God bless, you know. It's consenting adults have a good time, but. The truth is, if my partner was super into feet and said to me, listen, I just, this is such an important piece to me. Okay, well, my partner now has a choice because I'm not into feet. They either got to go without or they're going to go someplace else to get that need met. Now, I don't want them to go to somebody else to get that need met. Okay, so listen, can I fake it? Can I say, all right, listen, I'm not super into that, but if it's something that, you know, is going to scratch your itch, like I can pretend I'm into it. I mean, listen, are you, you, how many people don't like some member of their spouse's family, but they act like they like them when they have to go to a barbecue with them? And you go, oh, that's so dishonest. I can't believe you acted like you like Cousin Greg when you don't. You know, like, no, you're being a, you're being a considerate partner. 
you know, and maybe you get in the car and you say to your spouse, like, oh, I can't stand them. But, you know, I think I did a good job of like seeming like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, and I appreciate it. You know, you keep things calm in the family. Yeah, no, no, it's cool. Like we make compromises all the time. Like, listen, if you're maybe you don't love every single thing that they love, but you sit through it or you go, okay, I'm going to throw this into the repertoire so they don't have to go elsewhere or even have any temptation to go elsewhere if it's something important to them. Or it might just be something passing and small to you where you think you'd like this thing. I mean, how many things sexually, ask yourself the question, honestly, if you've had, you know, a good sexual relationship with a partner where you've been able to experiment. And if you're a man like I am, who was raised on pornography and, you know, has seen all kinds of things and you go, oh boy, that would be fun to do. And you got a partner who goes, all right, yeah, let's do it sometime. And then you do it and you go, that was like weird. I don't know. It looked really good. Best example ever, shower sex. Shower sex looks awesome. You watch any movie, people have sex in the shower. It looks so passionate. Anyone who's ever had sex in the shower is going to say, it's the worst possible place to have sex. You're washed off every natural lubrication either person has. It's the worst. You're slipping, you're, you can't get traction, but it looks nice. Now, now again, are there people who probably enjoy it? Good, God bless. But the truth is, is what you think it's going to be for you and what it is. But the only way you're going to figure that out is to do it. And then you go, oh yeah, that wasn't as amazing as I thought it was. And it saves you the trouble of saying, you know what, 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 what if, what if the grass on the other side of the sexual fence was greener? It's not, it's just more grass. It's just a different grass. And so help your partner and help yourself identify what really is compelling and what's really meaningful. It reminds me, uh, C.S. Lewis in uh, a book he wrote, I forgot which one it was, but he has this idea, he talks about submission in a marriage and he says, it's actually a mutual submission. It's like a dance. The husband and wife have to take turns yep. submitting to each other. And this is not just about sex. Uh, it's other things too, but it's the same sort of idea. You have yeah. to look at your spouse and say, like, what, what do they want? What do they need? And how can I give them that? And then in a, in a hopefully in a healthy relationship, a healthy marriage, your spouse is doing the same thing. What do they want? How can I give them that thing that they need or want? Um, and you take turns yeah, doing I think, that. I think sometimes you got to be Beyonce and sometimes you get to be Destiny's Child. Sometimes you get to be the Commodore. Sometimes you get to be Lionel Richie. And in the right dance of a marriage, you're following and leading in different ways. Um, you have different... And again, that's a dynamic that two people should not be afraid to work on together, honestly, right? Like, I, I think we're creating a culture where men are ashamed to admit that they like to be dominant, and they're ashamed to admit that they like to sometimes be submissive in things. And when I, I say submissive, I mean that they like to defer decision-making. Like, there are aspects of my life I am submissive, and I'm a very dominant person, but I don't care what couch we have. I've had the same couch probably for 10 years. If you ask me what color it is, I couldn't possibly tell you. My partner picked it out. I didn't pick it out. I have no idea. Like, I, I don't pay attention to those things. So if you say to me, if you're my partner and you say to me, hey, um, you know, what do you think of this couch? I'm humoring you when I go, well, I don't know. What do you think of it? Well, I really like it. Yeah, no, I like it too. You know, I'm being submissive in that aspect of our relationship because I just don't care. You know, but there are other aspects where I, I am very much a very take charge, very dominant type of a person. And so I, I, I think we should all be able to do that dance together. What is that about? Submission is about trust. I mean, you know, we have all this talk about alpha males and, and chads and, you know, all the stuff that's sort of in the manosphere. And what's humorous to me about it is a lot of it's about trust, 
And trust is about being worthy of trust, you know, being the kind of man who a woman can lean into and submit to. You know, how do you expect a woman to feel comfortable deferring to your view on something or trusting your judgment if if you that's not worthy, right? I mean, I I have always found as a man that I like to pick the restaurant, but I like to pick the restaurant that she's going to want to go to. And actually, my favorite thing is to pick the restaurant that she's going to want to go to that she doesn't know she's going to want to go to, that she doesn't know how much she's going to love it until we get there, because I know her so well that I know that she just went, oh, yeah, no, I don't think I'll like that. But I secretly, I know she's going to like it. She just needs that little push. You know, and what is that? That's being trustworthy. That's having this person's best interests in mind. And I want a partner who has that view of me, and I want to have that view of my partner always. Okay, so we've talked about sex. Let's talk about another source of marital conflict, and that's money. How have you seen money cause marital conflict in your work? Yeah, money, again, is about trust and about communication. I think it's like infidelity in the sense that it's, it's about... Um, trusting someone and then being betrayed in that trust. Um, but again, it's not a simple good guys and bad guys situation because very often, you know, people will say, well, he was lying about the finances and he should have just told me the truth. And so really, would you have been receptive to that? Like if he'd said, hey, look, you're spending more than I can make or I'm doing my best to make as much as I can, but my business has changed. Would you have met that with a like, oh, of course, babe, and I'm still going to be as excited and happy in our marriage as I was before. So I, I think it's the same kind of thing. It's very easy after someone has been caught cheating saying, well, if you just told me that you wanted different things in our sexual relationship, I would have been there for you. Oh, sure, you would have been. No, you wouldn't. If you would have judged me, you would have denied me of it. You, you wouldn't have done that. You're only saying that now because it's easy to say it in retrospect. Same thing with finances. Finances, very hard to be honest about finances, about the workload, about who manages the finances and the trust that comes with that. Um, if you share a household and you share finances, that's a tremendous intimacy. Um, it's a tremendous loss of privacy in terms of, of, of if you have purely joint finances. I actually encourage people in my book, there's a chapter called The You, The Me, and The We, um, where I encourage people to maintain separate accounts as well as joint accounts. Um, because I think it's important to have a certain amount of autonomy in a relationship where if I buy you a birthday present, you don't get to see how much I spent on your birthday present necessarily or exactly where I bought it if we're using the same credit card. So I think there is some value to having some privacy, um, even when you're in a marriage. And agreeing that, look, here's what the money that's coming in. Here's how much stays in my account. Here's how much goes in your account. And here's how much goes into our joint account. And here are the bills we pay out of the joint account. And here's the money that we spend out of our individual accounts. And you can use that for manicures. You can use that for spa days. You can use that for classes that you want to take. And I'm going to use this for my golf, or I'm going to use it to sports gamble, or I'm going to use it for gaming or whatever it is that I might want. And that way, everybody has a certain level of autonomy. So I think finances, it's one of those things that we don't have a lot of formal education in it. Um, there's a lot of deception, you know, there's a performative society where everybody's, you know, on the Instagram page with their luxury cars flying private. And meanwhile, that's not real. It's false a lot of the time, or it's based on a debt structure, um, that you're never going to see until it's too late and they're already bankrupt or it's based on a Ponzi scheme. So I think it's the same kind of thing. It's the same as sex. It's something we don't like to talk about 
It's uncomfortable to talk about, which is why we should talk about it more. So my wife and I, we have joint accounts and we haven't explicitly put like a money limit, but for the most part, both my wife and I have just autonomy on buying stuff from the joint account. Sure. But if there's like a thing that's like expensive or like, oh boy, this is going to be a big thing. Then we have the conversations like, well, I'd like to buy this thing, but here's the price tag. Um, yeah. We do it. And that, but that, I mean, you run it like a business, right. which is if you've got an expense account, you know, at your business, or you got a company card and you're charging, you know, Dunkin' Donuts to bring to a client's, you know, okay, well then you don't have to, but if I'm buying a $500 bottle of wine for a client, I need prior authorization from the office, you know? And I, I think that's pretty reasonable is to say, Hey, what's the limit? And by the way, you can increase that limit as your income goes up. You know, there's a time early on where it's like, Hey, 50 bucks. If it's more than that, we got to talk about it. And maybe you get to a place where you go, yeah, if it's more than 10,000, we should have a conversation. But if it's less than that, don't worry about it. And I think that that's important. It's all about communication. Yeah. So keep an open communication. And then also one thing that happens in marriages is you get comfortable with roles, right? So sure. typically often what I've seen a lot of marriages be like, well, the husband doesn't want to think about the finances. I'll just put the paycheck in the thing and the wife just worries about things. Uh, or it's like the husband takes care of all the investments and the wife's like, I don't like to do that stuff. And that can cause problems because you don't have eyes on each other. Sure. And then when you finally discover, oh my gosh, you've been investing in this crazy Ponzi scheme and I haven't known about it, and then that's when the, it blows up. Uh, so you point out an important thing to do. If you do set up roles where one person's taking care of finances and the other person's not worrying about it, still make time where you get together regularly and say, hey, here's what's going on with the investment portfolio, our retirement accounts, or here's what's going on with the daily expenses for the kids, uh, just so you know. And that's important to do. 100%. I mean, I think anything other than that's irresponsible. You know, a simpler and less threatening analogy is if you're married to someone and they love to cook and they just enjoy it, they learn to cook from their family, they enjoy cooking, they find it satisfying, they love to watch you eat the food that they cooked. That's amazing. What a gift. Wonderful thing to be married to someone who's a good cook. But you still got to know how to cook for yourself. There's going to be times where your partner's not there and able to cook for you. They're going to be away. They're going to be doing something else. You need to know how to cook. And maybe you don't need to know how to be a gourmet cook, but you at least know how do I scramble an egg? How do I make some spaghetti? Right? You got to know enough. So, yeah, maybe they don't know, you know, how you have your, your investments hedged and, and what index funds you're in versus what bond portfolio you have laddered. But they certainly need to go, okay, here's where our accounts are. And here's roughly how much is in them. Here's what debts we have. You know, if nothing else, you know, God forbid something happens to you. They need to have access to that information, that basic information, because they're on that boat with you. They're invested in this with you. So it's up to them to know it as well, too. I am shocked at how many people come into my office and they go, yeah, my, my partner handed all the expenses. I don't know anything. I don't know where our money is. I don't know what we spend on what. I don't know. And sometimes I have to tell them that, yeah, you look rich and you're poor. You got white teeth and rotting gums. Like, you, yeah, you got a beautiful car that is owned by a leasing company. And you got a great house that the bank, it's 90% of it is leveraged debt to equity. Like, this is the reality of your finances. It is very dangerous to just hand everything over to another person. I understand, again, the temptation to do it. But long term, don't you want to have some sense of what's going on with your partner and their stresses as well? Don't you want to understand because I do think sometimes the stress that we carry about finances 
Um, it can translate to other disconnections within a marriage. It can translate to other problems. So it's important to stay connected on all spheres of your partner, their health, their economic health, their sexual health, where they're at, um, because you're with them on this thing. Any other sources of marital conflict you've seen? I think one you mentioned is in-laws can be a source or even friends. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you're ever married to one person. I think you marry a family. You know, you marry, even if the, the family's not around, you're marrying a family history. You know, you're marrying the conflict resolution techniques that they watched their parents do successfully or unsuccessfully, the holiday traditions that they did, um, the baggage or the trauma. Uh, you know, if you're married to an adult child of an alcoholic, you're marrying the control issues, you're marrying all those other things. I mean, the history of addiction that a family might have and that then might be carried through with the people um, that are there, the role modeling they've seen of how couples should relate to each other, how people should argue and fight. So I think it's very important to remember that you're marrying a person who is part of a tapestry. And it's important to, to sort of know what that tapestry is and understand the dynamics of it. And of course, if family members and friend systems are still part of this person's life, you're going to have to deal with those people. You have to deal with exes, you know, people who marry someone who's divorced and has children. They have a co-parent you're going to have to deal with. People do not are not an island. You know, you're marrying into a system and having honest conversations about the challenges and opportunities created by that is, is a good thing. Listen, it's not all burden having a mother-in-law. A mother-in-law can provide free babysitting. A mother-in-law can be a tremendous ally in your relationship if you have a good relationship with her. Um, but it can also be a tremendous hindrance. It could be someone who always takes your spouse's side or who's very critical of you or who you find it difficult to get along with. None of these things are in and of themselves good or bad, but they're factors. And I think just looking honestly at those factors rather than just focusing on what cake we're going to have for the wedding you know, is what's important. And I, I think we should be mindful in our marriage, in our selection of a marriage partner, and in maintaining the health of our marriage. And this is where that just sin mentality can come in handy, right? So let's say you're newly married and then, you know, you notice your mother-in-law, she's kind of a busybody and she wants to inject herself into your marriage. Instead of not saying anything and being resentful about it, like tell your wife, like, you know what? Your mom's great. I love how she does this and does this. Uh, but when she injects herself all the time into decisions we're making about like what house we should buy, I'm not comfortable. That makes me feel upset. Like you gotta, you have to get it out there in the open. A hundred percent. And I think that, but, but, but doing it in a way that doesn't put your partner on the defensive or that they've done something wrong um, I think is important because again, constructive criticism is still criticism. Right. I think you, as a, a, a happily married man, you know, you showed a good little technique there, which is you started by saying, "Listen, I love your mom." So you, you started with that, like, "I love your mom." Not saying I don't love your mom. You know, no one's perfect. I'm not perfect. She's not perfect. But and then you use a lot of I statements. You know, I felt very put off when she was saying A, B, and C. So you're not saying, you know, she sticks her nose where it doesn't belong. What you're saying is, listen, I felt this way. Because who's going to argue with your feelings? Like, you feel the way you feel. You can apologize for feeling the way you feel, but, you know, you feel the way you feel. And maybe your partner will say to you, no, no, you shouldn't feel that way 
because this is how she relates to everyone. Or here's some examples of, you know, you know, she loves my dad, but here's how she talked to him about the house. Or this is just a house thing. Or, oh, this comes from the fact that my dad never let her pick the house. So now she's kind of working that out with us in our house. And sometimes understanding the context, you know, when it's explained to me that, you know, my family member went through the depression and that's why this person keeps the tinfoil. I was like, all right, I'm not going to make fun of that anymore because I understand the context of it. Or, oh, yeah, this person, their father died at the kitchen table when they were seven years old of a massive heart attack. So that's why they're very sensitive to loud noises. You know, like, okay, man, I know that context now. I'm going to interpret that very differently. I'm not going to look at it like, oh, your mom thinks I'm an idiot. And I can't pick a house. No, my, my mom is working her stuff out and, and the stuff in her marriage to my dad. And, you know, then you kind of look at that with compassion and with empathy and with love, you know, and, and that might help you navigate it. You know, but you got to give your partner the opportunity to, to explain it to you rather than what do most people do? They don't talk. Just yeah, suck yeah, it right. up, hold it in, get pissed. And when six months later you get an argument about the best way to get to the mall from your house, it turns into, you know, in your mother, you sound just like her and you just know everything just like your mom does when it comes to houses. And you're like, whoa, how long have you been carrying that around? You know, why don't we talk about it when it happened? And why don't we talk about it in a way that wasn't this fight, this attack on each other. Why didn't we talk about it in a way where we're supporting each other and saying like, Hey, look, man, I, I, you know, that hurt, that hurt when your mom said that, or man, it hurt when you took your mom's side on that. I, I feel like I expect you to take my side and maybe that's wrong of me, but man, it hurt that, that really like, that's a, I want to know, I want to know if I hurt my partner. I know I didn't mean to, I know I didn't mean to. I, I know that that's not my goal. You know, I know that the people I love, I know I love them and I know I don't want to hurt them. I'm sure I do hurt them from time to time, but I'm really grateful when they have the courage to tell me that I hurt them because I, I know I didn't mean to, and I know I wouldn't want to do it again and again and again. So I'm really grateful when they tell me how I might've missed the target. So people often get married to raise a family, have kids, but kids can change a marriage. And instead of thinking of your spouse just as a sexual partner, a person who is there to help you, you know, be the best you can be, right? You see them as, okay, they're a mother as well. And that changes the dynamic. How have you seen kids unintentionally uh, harm a marriage? And then what can you do to avoid that? Yeah, that's a great question. Kids, kids are, I think, antagonistic to a marriage in many ways. I mean, of course, there's certain aspects of being a parent that I think very much can deepen a relationship and a bond and a love between people. So I'm certainly not saying don't have children. But I, I do think that, look, people, A, are sleep deprived when they first have children. Their bodies, you know, particularly a woman, her body changes tremendously and feels out of control in many ways after she's had a baby and changes people's sexual habits. I mean, there's all kinds of things that come from that. But but also, I, I just think it's easy to become two people running a daycare facility together, just focused on the kids' needs above anything else, forgetting that that sexual chemistry and romantic connection between the two of you is the thing that created this child's existence. It was born of your romantic and sexual connection. I mean, children are born of a sexual romantic connection. And so I think it's important not to lose that. I think people who are divorced in a friendly fashion are on to something that I don't think you have to get divorced to enjoy. And that is, and I say this as a man who, my kids were five and seven when I got divorced. And uh, it was a friendly divorce. I lived down the street from my ex-wife and we had a very friendly relationship and the kids were able to go back and forth very comfortably. And 
I had time where I had my kids and I gave them my full focus. And, and then I had time where I did not have to think about my kids. They were with the other person who loves them as much as I do. And I could really just focus on career or life or other relationships. And that was a phenomenal, phenomenal thing. And, and I don't think you have to be divorced to do that. I think that you and your spouse, it's really important when you have kids to say there's time as a family and there's time as individuals. And I want you to have some time where I'm going to mind these kids and you go be you, whether it's go to Starbucks and read a magazine or go to a yoga class or go to the gym or just go enjoy yourself, uh, go out with your friends. Like remember the you you were when I fell in love with you that then led to these kids being born. And I think that's a really important thing. I like that. So uh, you're going to stay married, but you're going to do a split custody. Exactly right. Do joint custody and really lean into that and get a sense of what it's like to be in the fullness of yourself. And also give your kids a taste of what it's like to have you alone, you know, one parent alone. Anybody who has more than one child will tell you when you go out with one child as opposed to both or multiple children, you get a different kid. Yeah. You know, because a different side of them comes out. They're not competing for each other's attention. Uh, something my wife and I do, we do a weekly marriage meeting and we've written an article about this and we've done a podcast about it. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. But the weekly marriage meeting, it's on Sunday. It takes about 15 minutes. Doesn't It's not very long. Uh, it starts off with appreciation. So we just tell each other like, hey, well, this is what I appreciated this week that you did. Thank you for doing this. I love that. And then we talk about to-dos. This is basically household stuff. This is like the business part of the marriage. Things that need to get done around the house, bills that need to be paid, stuff that needs to be happen with the kids. But then we do this plan for good times and it's plan for good times as a family, but then also plan for good times as an individual. I so it's like, hey, it's a chance to be like, I want to do this thing with my friends or I want to go to this event by myself or whatever. Can we make that happen this week or in the next couple of weeks? I love that. You do the same thing for your spouse. Like give them a chance. What do you want to do this week on your own? But, but what are you doing there, Brett? You're really doing the you, the me, and the we. You know, you're saying like, what do you need to be the fullness of you? And what can I do to support that? What do I need to be the fullness of me? And what can you do to support that? And then what can we do together? And, and we're, we're making time to identify what we're doing right and what we could do better. And giving each other, you know, that kind of fearless communication, that kind of sort of, you know, that, that commitment to us as individuals and us as a unit is really, I think, the key. And it's exactly the sort of thing that'll keep you out of my office, which is great. So another reason that can cause marital conflict or that can lead people to your office is they just kind of become indifferent it's really sad. They just become indifferent to the marriage and indifferent to their spouse. But I think we've kind of been talking about like, it's, it's little things that lead to that indifference. It's just not paying attention. And here, a lot of people talk about marriage. It's like, man, marriage is the hardest thing I've ever done. It's really, really hard, man. And you argue that marriage is actually pretty dang easy because it just comes down to, you just got to, you just got to care. You just have to pay attention. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that if you're finding marriage very, very difficult, I don't think you're doing it right. I, I really just don't think you're doing it right. Because the people that I know that have very satisfying, happy marriages, yes, they work at it. Like I, I work at my job, but I love my job. I enjoy my work. Like I, I find it overall very satisfying. Yeah, there's effort involved. It's challenging at times, but it's not drudgery. You know, and I, I think if your marriage is drudgery, if your marriage is more often than not 
an unpleasant thing you have to attend to rather than something that's adding value to your life, I, I think you have to ask some hard questions at that point because you're either doing it wrong or you're married to the wrong person. So yeah, do the note thing. Yeah, no thing's a good call. And those kinds of check-in meetings, I think like, you're onto something with that. And it's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about in the book when I talk about hit, hitting send now or having like walk and talks. Well, James, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, the book's available, you know, everywhere books are available. If you want to listen to me talk for eight and a half hours, you know, uh, you can go to Audible and, and download it. Um, uh, the audiobook sells really well. I don't know if that has any, I don't think it has anything to do with my voice. I think it just has to do with the way people consume media. Um, you can find a little bit about me uh, uh, on Instagram, which is uh, NYC Divorce Lawyer. I don't post there often. I avoid uh, social media like the plague to some degree. But certainly there's information about my firm and my, my work. And when I do media appearances, television and things like that, um, we post it on the firm's website, which is NYC, like New York City, NYC Divorces, plural, divorces.com. So nycdivorces.com or jjsesq.com. That's James Joseph Sexton, jjsesq.com. But any of those places is a good place to, uh, to find out what I'm up to. Fantastic. Well, James Sexton, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brett. Appreciate it. My guest today was James Sexton. He's the author of the book, If You're in My Office, It's Already Too Late, A Divorce Lawyer's Guide to Staying Together. It's available on amazon.com. You can find more information about his work at his website, nycdivorces.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash stay together, where you find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AWIM podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminding you time to listen to the AWIM podcast, put what you've heard into action.